All right, let's open our Bibles then to the end of Psalm 119, the very last section. And in a few moments, you'll understand why we sang all six verses of that hymn. It is Psalm 119, verses 169 through 176, this last section uh, of this great psalm that focuses us again and again, remember almost every verse except three or four, deals with the word of God in some fashion and pushes us and directs us back to the word for our comfort and we'll see that this last section is no exception. So if you're able and want to stand, please stand with me as I read the final section. (laughs) Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to what your word says that we might not just read it but understand it, that it would sink into our hearts and our minds and be the very uh, meat that we feast upon. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 169 and following. Let my cry come before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. Let my lips utter praise, for thou dost teach me thy statutes. Let my tongue sing of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Let thy hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I long for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, that it may praise thee, and let thine ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So, like almost every other section that we have dealt with, there are many things in here. We're only going to deal basically with two, uh, the start and the finish of this section. Um, And and we see, like the rest of the psalm, uh, the psalmist is crying for help. He says, Lord, let my cry come before you. And then in 170, let my supplication or plea come before you. So he knows where to go. He knows to go to the Lord because of whatever is going on in his life, uh, whatever problems he's having, whatever issues he is having, and we'll we'll address those in in, in just a little bit, but he takes them to the Lord. And I get a sense here that I don't think he knows what else to do. Now, this is probably a situation which is familiar to many of us. I just don't know what else to do. I've done everything humanly possible. I've done everything that I could. I've done everything that I can think of. I've talked to everybody. I've tried to work it out. And and unfortunately, so often we get to the end, and then that's when we go to the Lord and say, Lord, all I have left is prayer. Instead of starting there with prayer, we end up there with prayer. And that's kind of where the psalmist is now. David says, I'm out of options. I've just done everything I can think of. Lord, hear my cry. Hear my cry. Now, I've quoted William Plummer as we've dealt with this psalm off and on. He's, he writes a lot about this psalm. Remember, Plummer was a lawyer back in the late 17, early 1800s, a Baptist lay preacher, a politician from New Hampshire. He was a Federalist in the United States Senate. And as governor of New Hampshire, he was a Democratic Republican. Okay? 
Now, if you're a political science major, you know what that means, but uh, the rest of us, we don't. And he said, good men are often so situated that the only resource left to them is prayer. Sometimes we get there. We say, all we have left is prayer. I, I don't have anything else. We've been in those situations where all we can do is pray. Maybe it wasn't even a situation of our making or or life, but it was somebody else's life. And all we could do, we couldn't help them, we couldn't intervene, we couldn't do do whatever our heart really really wants to see them come to, to wholeness or healing, but we can't do it. So all we have left is prayer. And I believe, like Plummer was saying, that God often allows us to be in that specific circumstance So we will lean on him and he as a resource in our prayers. Plummer goes on to say, Prayer is never performed aright as to be answered until we are taught by the Holy Spirit. I had to read that four or five times before I think I I understood it. Prayer is never performed aright as to be answered until we are taught by the Holy Spirit. What does the Lord want us to learn in this time of prayer? Now, it might just be our daily prayer and our care for for others, but in a situation like this, like the psalmist is in, where he is up against it, can't do anything else that's humanly possible, what does the Lord now want him to learn in these things? And Plummer points us to Romans chapter 8, 26. You can resource that later. And he goes on to say that distress is a natural means of stirring us up to prayer, but only when it is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See, what he's saying is that the Lord will take that struggle and that situation and that place where you have reached the end as far as you can tell, and he will sanctify that in your life to help you in your prayer. The man of prayer prays because we go to the Lord. He knows the Lord is the only one who can fix or come to conclusion in this particular circumstance. It is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies those circumstances in our life to aid us in our prayer. Okay? That's, that's what that, that comes down to. Now, we did something different today as we sang this, the hymn, How Great, How Firm a Foundation. And as I said, we, we sang it because this one has six stanzas and ours has only four. Then ours left out two of these great ones that you may not even be aware of because you're so used to singing the other ones. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, verse 4 here, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. That's just what Plummer was talking about. It's what our psalmist is is wrestling with here. Um, And he says, distress in and of itself does not create a spirit of prayer. But the Holy Spirit will sanctify our distress and drive us to the Lord that way. Okay, There are a lot of people out there who go through tough times and they don't pray. But in the believer's life, we are called to take those times and let the Holy Spirit work in our lives to sanctify those times of distress to drive us to our knees in prayer. Now, the words of, of the psalm, the How Firm a Foundation, in total go back to Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah is writing about the deliverance of the Lord in his, for his covenant people in two instances. They walk up to the sea. And there's the sea in front of them, and there's Pharaoh's army behind them, 
and they have no human possibility of getting out of that situation. And what do they do? They go to the Lord, and the Lord does what? We know, he parts the sea. The other instance that he's talking about is they come up to the promised land, and there they are, they have to cross the River Jordan to get into the promised land, the early, early chapters of uh, Joshua. But the only problem is that the Jordan is in flood stage. And now the, if you've been to the Jordan, you know there are places where you can cross the Jordan. It, it's, Jordan's kind of a nasty river, okay? If you've been there, you know. Uh, um, but that was the river that they had to cross. And it was at flood stage. That means it's all the way up to the bank. It's all the way up to the edge, okay? The Lord got them across. He said, step in, and then I'll stop the water. Well, Lord, can't you stop the water first? You know, how many times in our lives have we said, okay, Lord, will you do this first, and then I'll jump in? The Lord says, step in the water, and I'll stop, I'll stop the flow. His core promise of the Lord is, I will be with you. I will bless you and sanctify you amid your troubles, amid your distress. Now, God does not mean in that that in the midst of your trouble and distress, you'll get a warm fuzzy or he will come and just be around you. He is saying, I'm going to take that situation that I may have put you in specifically or that I may have allowed you to go in and I will be there guiding you and working it for your good. Remember, good is defined by whom? By God, not by Randy. I say, okay, my good. I can tell you what my good is in this situation. No, the Lord says, I know what's good, and I'm going to provide it for you. I'm going to provide it for you. God promises to participate in our distresses in an active, powerful, and sovereign way. He is the one who will work in our lives. The stanza, which, which we're talking about here, gives us four ways that God personalizes what he is doing, and specifically in the larger picture of Isaiah chapter 43. God calls you to deep waters. God calls you to deep waters. I'm not going to go there on my own. Okay, it's not a place I want to be. Those deep waters, that's a euphemism for trouble, for a mess. Sometimes he calls us into that. God sets a limit on your sorrows. Gee, there's something that Paul says in Corinthians, isn't it? He says what? No, no, come on. No trial comes to you that's uncommon to man. I'm not going to give you anything that, you, that I have not already given you the strength to face. Randy's paraphrase. Okay? God sets a limit on your sorrows. God is with you, actively bringing good from your troubles. We've already looked at that. He defines good. And in the context of distressing events, God will change you. Okay, so often we come and we say, God, I want you to change my events. Maybe God is saying, ah, Randy, I'm going to change you. Uh, I, I didn't want that, Lord. I want you to change. No, no, I'm, I know it's good for you. And this is what I'm going to do in your life. Now, the Lord never minimizes our hardships. When he speaks about deep waters, rivers of sorrows, troubles, distresses, he convinces you that the hard thing will come to good beyond all you can ask dream or imagine romans chapter 8 ephesians chapter 3 i will do more than you can dream or imagine that's what the lord will do you will pass through the valley of the shadow of death in your life there will be times i understand um, we've talked about this before when it says the valley of the shadow of death i really i never really grasped that and understood what it meant until i heard somebody talk about that 
And he illustrated it this way. He said, Randy, you're standing alongside the road, and a semi-truck comes barreling down the road. And it goes past you, and its shadow passes over you. What has happened to you? Uh, not much. What would have happened to you if you were out in the street? Well, I would have been flattened. He said, you have faced the valley of the shadow of death. Christ faced death. He faced the full weight and power of death on the cross to give his life for us. When we die, we face only the shadow. If we are in Christ, death has no power over us. It, it, we will die. But then we close our eyes in death. When we blink and open them, who do we see? That's the Lord. Okay? It is the Lord. That's the valley of the shadow of death. So when you sing, how firm a foundation, you're saying, Lord, by your spirit, make even the deepest, darkest distress, the darkest dangers grow us in grace and drive us into a deeper sense of prayer, a deeper purpose, a deeper activity, and a deeper practice of prayer. Look at verse 5 in that one. Now remember, this is God speaking in verse 5. It's not, it's not scripture, but the, 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 hymnal, the hymnist is writing as if God is speaking. When through fiery trials, let's just put Randy's name in here, Randy's pathway shall lie, my, that's God's, grace is all sufficient, shall be Randy's supply. The flame shall not hurt Randy, the Lord only designs that Randy's dross to consume, Randy's gold to refine. Ooh. Think about that. That's what the Lord is doing in these fiery trials. He's consuming the dross of my life and refining the gold. Consuming the dross, refining the gold. Let's jump down to this last section, okay? This last verse. And this is, uh, we're going to park on this for just a minute, and, and it's, I think it's so good so appropriate for us and tells us so much about what God's love for us is like. 176, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Out of all the song, this last verse seems a little bit out of context. Now, I know you've been getting it on Sundays, and, and I, I, I get it all week, so I, I kind of see this flow. But when we get, it's the last verse of the whole psalm, and he says, Lord, I am lost. Come get me. Come get me. Now, just think, think like a shepherd. Back in 800, AD, 800 B.C., the sheep will not seek out the shepherd. The sheep will wander off. And will be way over there on the side of the field trying to eat the grass that they're not supposed to eat. Okay? Or trying to eat the weed that is detrimental to the sheep. And they don't know any better. But the shepherd must go and find them. And, and we see from the New Testament, what? He leaves the 99 and he goes and finds the one that is lost. Now we hear a lot of talk about men and women and people in the world trying to find God. Or, or saying, I have found God. I put those in quotes. And I'm going to give you some, uh, some quotes, particularly this one writer who, who said he had found God. And he writes, I love the way Rumi the Sufi poet put it. Now, that's where you can find God with Rumi the Sufi poet. 
Okay? I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on doors. The door opens. I've been knocking from the inside. Yeah, that's the kind of look I had first time I read it. Okay, let me, let me if you haven't figured it out yet, I'll, I'll give you some more quotes from this one author. As he searched for God, change your thinking about yourself and about God. You are not separate from God. You did not inherit some faulty gene that will keep you from knowing. This notion of inherited or original sin is just a theological construct created by religious thinkers down through the centuries and for all the good you may wish to believe they have done, the damage is manifestly worse and will take centuries to heal. They have no basis whatsoever in any of Jesus' teachings. Therefore, you must regard every thought of God as God. Practice this truth in your search for God, and in time you will discover that your old ways of thinking will undergo a miraculous metamorphosis. It's called salvation in the Bible. You will make the inexplicable discovery that the presence you seek is the person you are. The guy found God, and it looks just like him. Okay, <laughs> after all that searching and all these in Rufi the poet and Arumi the Sufi poet and, and, and crying out and doing all this, he's found God and it looks just like himself. And he is so pleased with himself, uh, pleased enough to go and, t- and, and earlier in the quote tell you, forget about that scripture stuff, forget about that theology, forget about all the study that's been done for the last 2,000 years, that will just lead you astray, look and you'll find God. Yeah. I, that's not the God I believe in. <laughs> People search for God. They look in the wrong places. When they find something they like, they assume that must be God because they like it. So they're happy with it. And many people are out there searching for God, but they're only going to find him if God is seeking them. They say, well, Rand, that's... That can't be right. Isn't it? What's that passage in the New Testament? Doesn't it say? Knock, or what's it go? Ask, seek, knock, and you will find. What's the song? Um, help me. <laughs> uh, come on, come on, come on. Seek, and you shall find. Ask, and it shall be given, and love come a tumbling down. You know that one. Come on, come on. <laughs> Well, yes, but you have to understand the context of that passage out of Matthew. Okay? It is, literally it says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's a, it's a verse about perseverance. It's a verse about perseverance. All the verbs are present imperatives, and it's more than just a repetition. It's a building intensiveness. Okay? This is the way it is. I want to know how to get to Dan's house. So I ask him, Dan, how do I get to your house? He gives me directions. Great. Do I stop there? No, I get on the road, and I go and I seek his house. There it is. I pull up in front. That's Dan's house. Great. No, I must do what? I must knock on the door. And that's what the verse is about. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It is a continuous, lifelong process in these things. So when it comes to men and women seeking God for salvation, the success of their search is dependent upon God seeking them. We're going to look at that in just a second. 
C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, he said, amicable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. Uh, he said, God closed in on me. Now, C.S. Lewis was not a great Reformed theologian. He was a professor of medieval literature, okay, who did a lot of allegories and things like that. Great, great things, but he was not a Reformed theologian. But he recognized, God closed in on me. He said, in all the things that I did, in all the things I looked for, he came around me and got me and got a hold of me, and there was no getting out of it. No getting out of it. So what are some evidences that God is the one that's seeking us? Well, let's start all the way in the back in the beginning. Genesis 1, what happened? Were, were we here and then we said, hey, you know what? I think there's something more than me. I'm going to go find it. No, there was nothing and God spoke it into existence and he created us in his image and likeness. He made us like him in some fashion. He created a place for us. He put us in that place for his purposes, for his glory. And we have dominion over all the world. And then we're told he also gave Adam and Eve this uh, first couple, the expression the, 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 of all creation. He said, you can do anything except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then, of course, that's where they went. Okay, gave in to sin, gave in to temptation, and God had every right to destroy his creation, wipe them out, and start again. But yet it was that action of theirs, which God providentially knew, and in his sovereignty had so ordered, that would bring about the coming of Christ to seek that which was lost. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God choosing his own people. He goes and gets Abraham and says, what, I'm going to send you to... Gather your stuff, I'm going to send you to a place which I will show you. Did he ask Abraham's opinion on where he should go and what he should do? He said, no, just, I'm just going to send you. Go. That's what Abram did. Thus begins the story of God's covenant people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see them faithful and unfaithful. And faithful and unfaithful, God keeps them in his hand throughout all that time. Ezekiel chapter 34 for thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen the sick. Isaiah 62, And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You will be called sought out. But the Lord came and sought you out. We get to the New Testament, the clearest indication the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, now it doesn't, doesn't include my seeking after the Lord there, but it says Jesus came for this purpose, to seek and then to save the lost. At the Last Supper, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. John chapter 4, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Other ways that we find that God comes and seeks us. While we were sinners, what happened then? Christ died for us. See, a sinner, the, the, the heart is totally sinful, doesn't seek out the Lord. God came and gave his life for us. He chose to adopt us as his sons, adopt us as his daughters before creation. Ephesians chapter 1. 
God sent his spirit to live within us as a guarantee, Ephesians chapter 1. It was all his initiative to say, I will live in you and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will write my law on your heart. Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to a completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He doesn't cast us off. He started it. He will bring it to a completion. So we look at this last verse here. And David says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. I'm out there. I'm eating on the weeds of the world. I think I've got everything I need. But, but Lord, you have to come and seek me. You have to come and find me and rescue me. Philip Keller, in the book I cited earlier, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, writes, He is the owner who delights in his flock. For him there is no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than that of seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, safe, and flourishing under his grace. This is indeed his very life. He gives all that he has. He literally lays himself out for those who are his. He will go to no end of trouble and labor to supply them with the finest grazing, the richest pasturage, ample winter feeding, and clean water, He will spare himself no pains to provide shelter from storms, protection from ruthless enemies, and the diseases and parasites to which sheep are so susceptible. No wonder Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And again, I come that you may have life, that you may have it more abundantly. It is no accident, Keller writes, that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is so similar in many ways. The mob instincts, our fears, timidity, stubbornness, stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. Yet despite these adverse characteristics, Christ chooses us, he buys us, he calls us by name, he makes us his own, and he delights in caring for us. Such is the love of the Heavenly Father. Have you said in your life, Lord, I have gone astray. I am lost. Come and seek me. Come and get me. Come and lay your hand upon me and draw me close to your heart, Lord, for I am lost. Let's pray. Lord, what shall we do? Where, where shall we go? Perhaps we were one of the people years ago, or, or maybe even now, who wanted to find you, who went out there and sought you in so many ways, in so many places, and, and, and it just never satisfied the longing of our heart. Here we find, Lord, come and seek us. Come and find us, Lord. Come and make us your own. Perhaps some of us have wandered off the reservation, so to speak. Perhaps we've lost our way and have found ourselves in the midst of things that we know we shouldn't be in. Activities, thoughts, relationships, whatever they would be. Come and find us, Lord. Draw us back as a shepherd. Come and take hold of us. 
Bring the healing oil to our hearts and our wounds. Bring us the comfort of the green pastures of your word, of the still waters, that we may lie down, we may find rest, that rest that can only come in you. Heavenly Father, come and find us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.